I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1, Philippians chapter 1. And you'll need a Bible to follow along as we look at God's Word today. So these brothers have some Bibles. As they make their way to the back, get their attention, they'll get one of those to you, and it's marked for you at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. People who choose to work extremely hard at something always do that because they think it's worth it. Now, I say choose to work hard because it's possible for one to work hard, but not by choice. A slave, for instance, is forced to work hard. But if we choose to work extremely hard, it's because we've decided that it's worth the effort. A marathon runner will train for his or her 26-mile race by running multiple times a day, often uphill and in pain. They'll adopt a diet that involves a good deal of self-denial, and they'll stay with it because there's a prize at the end, and for them, it's worth it. A student may forego nights out with friends or other pleasures in order to complete their program of study because there's a diploma or a degree at the end, and they deem it to be worth it. A mom will stay up at night with her little one, consoling that colicky baby and singing to her even though she's dead tired because that baby's well-being is worth it. Accomplishing anything worthwhile means that some other things will be forfeited in favor of the end that you're trying to achieve. And those sacrifices are put into perspective when they're compared to the attainment of the purpose. And all of this is true in the life of a Christian. You will evaluate all things that you do and all things that happen to you in light of the ultimate purpose of pleasing Christ in what he has assigned to you. We see this in the life of the great apostle Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books in your New Testament. One of those is 2 Corinthians. And in it he says this, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now notice, the troubles that he endures, and he's saying ours, that is the troubles we endure as well, are to, in light of the goal, in light of the purpose, in light of what's at the end, are worth it. And in fact, they seem light and momentary when compared to that. So all of the difficulties as I've endured, including being beaten to the point of death, is worth it because it all fits in with his purpose of advancing the gospel of Christ and becoming more like Christ in that process. Now sometimes we get the picture of Paul as a sort of superhero that could leap tall buildings at a single bound, give himself to be tortured, and do it all with a smile because he's always happy. But in that same book of 2 Corinthians, he said of himself and his companions in ministry, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. He goes on then to say, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
So we're going to see, as we study another of his 13 books today, we're going to see that he indeed went through difficulties, but he was able to recover his joy. He was able to have joy in the midst of that because God always came to his aid. And for him, for Paul, everything he endured was worth it. Now, the book that we've been considering for the last several weeks, Philippians, is another of those 13 written by Paul. And in this book, we again see his passion for the gospel and the Lord of that gospel, Jesus Christ. As he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, he's under house arrest. He's imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. But he brings his Christian perspective to this trial as he does to all of his other trials. Seeing it as worth it, because it, like all things that happen to him, is designed by God for his glory, for the progress of the gospel, and for Paul's ultimate good. Today, friends, we're going to see that every event that occurs in the life of a Christian, including those events that are difficult, can be used for God's glory and the gospel. And that, then, perspective should dramatically change the way we see our circumstances. If we see it that way, we'll endure, even with joy, because it's worth it. Let's ask God to help us, then, as we look at his word together. Father, here we are on another Lord's Day, with our hearts quieted, our minds focused, our Bibles open. To hear from you. We thank you, Lord, for communicating to us. We thank you for giving us your word and revealing in it yourself, revealing in it ourselves, telling us in it the purpose for which you have us here, and giving us instruction for how we can accomplish that purpose. It's to that end, Lord, that we look at this passage in your word today. Help us to be clear, help us to be accurate, and help us to apply what you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week was our ordinance Sunday, and the entirety of our worship hour was devoted to the observance of the Lord's table, communion. So our message was not in Philippians last week, but two weeks ago, we saw that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Philippi in chapter 1 in verses 12 through 18 to assure them that despite the fact that he's in prison, and while there are some of even his professing Christian brothers who are using that against him. Still, I want you to know, Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi, all is good. Now, why? Because the purpose of the gospel is still being achieved, and therefore, this is all worth it to me. He says in verse 18, Christ is preached toward the end of verse 18, and because of this, I rejoice. Because of this, I have have joy. And then at the very end of verse 18, He moves from his present circumstance to then thinking about what might happen in his uncertain future, and his perspective is still the same. End of verse 18, yes, and I will in the future, ongoing, continue to rejoice. Now why? Verse 19 begins to provide the reason for why, because it starts with the word for, because. For, because I know. That through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. We're going to look at, beginning in verse 19 through verse 26, what he tells us 
about how he sees what's going to happen in the future, whatever that, whatever that is. I have an outline for you inserted in your program. We do that every week. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you see that the first point made in this passage is this, that we're to live with the goal in mind. Live with the goal in mind. In verse 19 again, he says, what has happened to me at the end of that verse is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, the word that's translated deliverance there is a, is a Greek word. Most of you know your New Testament was written in Greek and has been translated into English for us. But the Greek word is soteria. And if you've ever read, uh, read any theology books, you know there's a section in a theology, a systematic theology book on soteriology. And that would be the section on salvation. And so this word is sometimes translated salvation. You could translate it, what has happened to me will turn out for my, for my salvation. And, in fact, that's, that's true. Uh, in fact, I'm convinced that that's what Paul's rever- referring to here. That he's not referring to my deliverance, meaning your prayers and the provision of God's Spirit is going to result in me getting out of jail. As we're going to see in this passage, he's not sure he's going to get out of jail. He's not sure what's going to happen to him. But he is sure that this is going to result in his ultimate deliverance, meaning his ultimate salvation. Now you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. I thought Paul was already saved. I thought he already had salvation. And most of us here are already saved. We already have salvation. But we need to remember that our salvation has three aspects to it. It has a past, it has a present, and it has a future aspect to it. And you see this in passages in your New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1. The past aspect is spoken of when it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. Past tense. So indeed, for those Ephesians to whom that was sent and to us, there was a point in time in the past, if indeed you're a Christian, where you heard the gospel and you believed it and responded in in faith. So you were saved in in the past. But then the salvation, this deliverance is ongoing as well. In fact, in that same book of uh, Ephesians, the next chapter, chapter 2, it says famously in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved. Now that sounds past tense, but it's actually written in Greek and in the present tense. And the present tense in Greek has has an ongoing effect. And so we, you could say, in chapter 1, we have been saved, we, we are saved, but then you could say in chapter 2 that we are being saved. He is continually working in us, setting us apart, delivering us from the power of, and, and, uh, the power of sin. In chapter 2 of Philippians, in fact, he speaks of this kind of obedience that God is working in us as he is delivering us from, from sin, saving us from sin. Philippians 2 and verse 12. If you just look one chapter over, he says, As you have always obeyed, continue to work out your deliverance, your salvation, with fear and trembling. So there's a past aspect to it. There's a present aspect to it. God is working at delivering us from, from sin. And then there is this future aspect. 
Romans chapter 13 speaks of that when it says our salvation, our deliverance, is nearer now than when we first believed. So if you're a Christian, you can say, I am saved, and I am being saved, and I will be saved. All of those are going on in your life. So ultimately, all that God allows in our lives contributes then to this deliverance that he is working in us. And Paul has then this great confidence. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Romans, these other verses that I quoted. And so he can say then to the Philippians, I'm convinced that all of this is happening for my ultimate deliverance, my ultimate salvation. He knows that all that God allows in our lives contributes to the road that God has chosen for us on the way to our final destination. And what is that goal? What's the ultimate goal? What's the prize that makes it all worth it? Verse 21, famously, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's the goal? Really, who's the goal? Christ. And everything that Christ cares about, his gospel, his glory, his people, to live is Christ. As we're going to see, to die is gain because that gives me a new dimension of relationship with Christ. So if that's the case, if what I need to do is to live with the goal in mind, then I say in your outline, that means that we need to see every event as leading to the goal. Every event as leading to Christ Every event leading to the gain that is Christ. Verse 19 says that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. Now that phrase, what has happened to me in verse 19, we saw that a few weeks ago. Back in verse 12. Back in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says to these Christians in Philippi, he says, I want you to know, verse 12, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we saw that when he says there in verse 12, what has happened to me, it goes back for several years, all that has happened to him. The book of Acts records Paul leaving the city of Ephesus and deciding to travel to Jerusalem to preach the gospel, despite his having been giving warnings that there was danger in Jerusalem for him. But indeed he went and he did encounter danger, even a plot against his life. And so the Bible tells us he was whisked away at night to another city, Caesarea, under the protection of the Roman magistrate, but also under arrest to determine whether his preaching constituted any violation of Roman law. He was there in Caesarea for for two years, and he ultimately appealed his case to Caesar, which is why he's now, when he writes Philippians in Rome, under house arrest. His travel to Rome included, the book of Acts tells us, a shipwreck and near death. And now he sits awaiting an uncertain verdict from the emperor. And all of that's contained in the phrase, what has happened to me, in verse 12, all of that. And now the the NIV repeats that phrase in verse 19. I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, actually, in in Greek, verse 19 does not say fully what has happened to me. 
but it just says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What the NIV translators assume, probably accurately, that by this he means all that has most recently happened in the last five years or so that led up to him being where he is. But hear this. Now hear this, friends. There is certainly no reason to limit Paul's confidence to only deliverance from what has most recently happened. He says he knows. And he has good reason to know. Not only that this will turn out for his deliverance, but everything will turn out for his deliverance. Everything that happens. To him, but also to us. Now how do I know that he thinks that? It's not just this particular ordeal. But it's everything. Because he said elsewhere, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And that purpose is going to be realized. That purpose of Christ being exalted. That purpose of his people being united finally and fully with him. That purpose will be achieved. And all of the things that are happening are leading and contributing to that. So that he says two verses later in Romans chapter 8. That those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I've told you before to look at those four things. Predestined and called and justified and glorified. And notice they're all in the past tense. And yet glorified hasn't happened yet. So here's something that's still to happen that's spoken of as if it already has. Why? Because it's a sure thing. Because it's going to happen and everything that is happening is moving toward it. So when glorified is used here in Romans 8.30, it's that third aspect of our salvation. I will be saved. I will be delivered in the future. But I don't know. And you don't know, and we're going to see, Paul does not know how the present circumstances we're in will turn out. So think about that. The circumstances you're in, the stuff that's going on in your life. You don't know how that particular thing is going to turn out. But Christians do know how it will all ultimately turn out. We will be delivered by the realization of our salvation. And that's why Paul could say in this very chapter, back in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. One commentator has said, each item in Paul's experience is but another of the Father's finishing touches, and all will result in the full enjoyment of salvation. This is a sure faith For Paul and for us also, the Christian need never fear the outcome of events. Life brings its daily pressures. Many of them are unexpected. Often they are uncalled for. Some, from time to time, they are traceable to the evil of wicked people. But God is over all. And there's no point in believing in a sovereign God if he can be tumbled off the throne by what happens to us or what is done to us. After all, he controls all of that too. John Calvin said, all things contribute to the advantage of God's true worshipers. All things. 
The ultimate deliverance, our final salvation, is inevitable. If we belong to Christ now, it will happen in the future. It's inevitable. But hear this, it's not automatic. It's inevitable. It will happen. But God has chosen to use means from here to there. There are means to that end, including, according to verse 19, the prayers of God's people. Verse 19, I know that through your prayers, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the reason that God responds to the prayers of his people is that when he provides what is requested, he gets the praise and the credit. You know, God doesn't need our prayers, right? Of course. So don't pray like you're informing God. You know, just censor your prayers. Think about what you say, because that's that's what we do. You know, God, so, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so, and they're over here. They've, we even give them a map for where they're located. You know, they're in the hospital and, they're, and all of that, and, and he knows all of that. We're not informing God about anything, but we are asking God. And the reason we are asking God is not because he doesn't know, but because when God determines to respond, he is the one who gets the praise. And God has chosen then to use the prayers of his people to achieve his ends. And hear this, the more prayers he answers, the more praise he receives. The more people that are praying, and then when God answers, that's more people who will then thank God and praise God for what he has done. You're saying you just made that up. It sounds good, but you made that up. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. On him we have set our hope that he will continue, notice, to deliver, to save us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You see, many pray so that many can praise. And that's why we then pray for each other. That's why we then pray for things. And many people pray for those things. And then when those things happen, many people rise up in praise to God. And God then supplies what is needed by his Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says, this deliverance will come through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase God's provision of the Spirit can and probably should be translated the help given by the Spirit. That is, this deliverance will come through your prayers and the help that's given by the Spirit. That is, it's not the Spirit that's being given. Because Paul and every believer already has the Spirit. Rather, it's the Lord's responding to our prayers to provide the Spirit's help. So although he will be delivered, most certainly... Because he will be saved and he will receive his reward. Though it's inevitable, it's not automatic. It involves the means of prayer and the Spirit's help. And that also involves the means of Paul's continued obedience to the Lord. So we see every event as leading to the goal, I say in your outline. But I say as well, make every effort to attain the goal. It's inevitable, but it's not automatic. And the means that are used to get from here to there are the prayers and the provision of God's spirit for what we need, but also our continued obedience. So make every effort to attain the goal. Verse 20. 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Notice the uncertainty here. I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I don't know what the sentence of the emperor is going to be. But either way, I have this, I have this confidence and this is my goal. Those two words eagerly expect are one word in Greek and it has three elements to that one Greek word. Away, the head, and to watch. And combined, that word gives the idea of watching something with the head turned away from other objects. To put it another way, it means Paul is determined to not be distracted from Christ and the gospel by anything else. When he says, I eagerly expect, he's saying, I am focused completely. And I'm going to continue to be focused completely on what matters most. And not be turned aside, distracted by anyone or anything. Oh, man. I'm looking at a bunch of distracted people. And you're looking at a distracted person. We are so easily turned aside from what matters most, aren't we? In this political season, how much does politics really matter, friends? Ultimately, how much does it matter? I watched Michigan-Ohio State yesterday. How much does it really matter? Now, really. I was glad to watch it. Classic game. Some bad calls. It's all good. I'm not bitter. The coach is bitter. I'm not bitter. I'm good. But really, you can get distracted by politics, by sports, by our jobs, our careers, conspiracies. Yikes, man, Christians get into some of the weirdest stuff. I mean, I get people asking me some of the weirdest stuff. Hey, have you ever heard about this thing about, you know, the, you know, the, did we really land on the moon? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we did. But if we didn't, I really don't care that much about that either. And and we're laughing, but I'm telling you, there's that kind of flaky kinds of stuff that goes on among otherwise intelligent Christian people. And the sad thing about it is, not only does it not matter, it distracts us from what does. So Paul says, I'm going to be focused. I have this eager expectation. And this eager expectation rests upon hope, according to verse 20. Hope in the New Testament does not mean what we mean by it. We say things I'd like it if someone, if something happened, but I don't know for sure that it will. Like I hope uh, I get a particular Christmas gift. That's hope that you want to happen, but you don't know that it will. But in the Bible, hope is something that's certain. Hear this, though the timing may be uncertain. It's certainly going to happen, I just don't know when. That's the hope that Paul speaks of. 
You know it's going to happen. You just don't know when. Paul knows he's going to be delivered. He's going to be saved, but he doesn't know when. And in particular, he doesn't know how. But because he knows for sure, he keeps his eyes on the prize and he determines to do what verse 20 says. I have this eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. Because of this, because I know this is going to happen, it affects then how I live and how I obey. I will not be ashamed. That is, I'll maintain a clear conscience that I'm fulfilling my calling to represent Christ in word and in deed. And he says, I'm I'm, I'm going to have sufficient courage, he says in verse 20. And that word that's translated courage is most often used in context of boldness to speak up. When there's some risk to speaking up. Well, he's in a situation where there's some risk to speaking up, isn't he? He's in prison. He's going to go before the emperor. But he, he's saying, I know that I'm going, to, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to have this boldness to speak. Verse 14 in chapter 1 speaks of him proclaiming the gospel without fear. And verse 20 tells us he also expects to maintain an unblemished record of service to the Lord. Because verse 20 says, I'm going to do that now as always. The result of all of this, my singular focus on Christ, it's based on my certainty that the Lord will bring me safely home whenever he determines. It means that it affects the way I live. I'm living out my calling. I'm living as an ambassador of Christ. I'm determined to do so to the end. And the result of that is at the end of verse 20, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ will be exalted. That is, Christ will be magnified. The word that's translated exalted has our English word mega in it. (laughs) That Christ will become enlarged. That Christ will become mega. That Christ will become big to, to me and to others who hear me preach about him and model him before them. Whether by my life or by my death, whichever happens. So here is someone who is living with the goal in mind, the ultimate goal in mind, as we are to do. And, I say in your outline, we're to live with the goal in mind and we're to live with others in mind. Live with others in mind. Christian hope makes the outcome certain, but it leaves open the time of fulfillment. Our deliverance, our salvation is certain, but the timing is is uncertain. Therefore, at the end of verse 20, Paul can do no more than express the alternative possibilities. There's either life or death. He knows nothing of the future other than it must be one or the other of these. And it's very clear which one Paul wants. (laughs) You say, well, clearly he wants life. Now, verse 21 again, to die is gain. Verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So which one does he want? I want to be with Christ. I want to finish my course The sooner the better, as far as I'm concerned, as far as Paul is concerned. That word gain in verse 21, to die is gain, it's used in chapter 3. 
chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. I consider them a loss that I may gain Christ. In those verses, Paul was looking back to the day when Christ became everything to him. He had added up all that might have been counted as valuable in his life, and he had found Christ worth more than everyone and everything, and he gladly surrendered all to and for him. Since Christ is what's most important to him, then he desires to be with Christ. And that's why he says in verse 23 then, to depart and be with Christ is better by far. The nature of a a Christian death is that of a, a departure. To depart, verse 23. It may well be a a camping metaphor. As many of you know, Paul was a tent maker. The Bible says in the book of Acts that Paul went to Corinth and there he met Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Because Paul was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And so here in chapter 1 and verse 23, he resorts to the language of his trade, describing life for the Christian as at best a transitory thing, a kind of camp life in which we travel through this life but moving to our permanent resting place. The Bible speaks of it this way. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So when the Christian is delivered, when the Christian is ultimately saved, camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. This exchange, he says in verse 23, is better by far than to remain on earth. Now suppose you had been with Paul in Rome just then. And you saw him in his situation. And you saw him as he is, as a man a man of vigor in mind and body, a man with enormous gifts, a man who's irreplaceable to the church. How deeply you would feel the loss if Paul is to be executed. What an untimely death, we would say, as we often hear when a notable Christian dies unexpectedly. But what would Paul have seen in it? (laughs) Paul's saying, I'm not the loser Don't worry about poor Paul. For him, it's better by far than anything else that could have happened or could be imagined. Indeed, even while the church mourned his loss, he would possess unimaginable riches. For him, as for us, our death too is better by far. Now, that's only true if you stop living like you're planning on staying here. But most of us live like we plan on staying here. Like this is our permanent home. I recently read a faithful pastor's comment saying one of the best things a preacher can do is to instill in his people the importance of living with eternity in view. It's one of the best things you and I can do, dear Christian friend. But despite that as his desire, he wants to depart. It's better by far to be with Christ. Despite the fact that that's what he wants, he's willing to remain on earth if that's what the Lord has for him. 
Why? Because he's living not for himself, but for others, including and especially other Christians. And that's why I say in your outline, be willing to give your life for others. Be willing to give your life for others. Verse 22, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor. And what is that fruit? Who is, who is, who is the beneficiary of that fruit? Verse 23 again, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But verse 24, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So even though this is what I want, I'm willing to do this because of you. Because it's better for you. I'm willing to put aside what I want for what's best for you if that's what the Lord desires, which I can only know later. And Paul can say this and have this attitude and this perspective because he loves them. He loves the Philippians. He loves God's people. Because remember what love is? I've given you this working definition of love many times. Someone repeated it back to me just the other day. It's a wonderful thing when somebody remembers what I said. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And Paul is saying, I want to do what's in your best interest. I heard the uh, story, read the story few months ago of a man who met with a famous Christian theologian and philosopher. A few of you will know the name Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til is with the Lord, a brilliant man, taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia for decades. He specialized in apologetics and taught that, how to defend the faith. Just a a brilliant, erudite man. But this fellow writes of an encounter he had with Van Til. And here's what he said. It is very nearly four decades since, as a terribly callow graduate student with an interest in philosophy, I made a pilgrimage with a friend to the home of a professor of Christian apologetics. I was looking for direction. And even though Cornelius Van Til had been retired For many years, he was known to welcome inquirers, whom he often greeted on his front porch with a rake in hand, suggesting perhaps that they could pile up his leaves for him before they talked. I was hoping to hear an intimidating, intellectually convoluted, scholastic, metaphysical strategy for blowing the philosopher's version of Gideon's trumpet. Van Til, then pushing 80, stood with his hard white comb of hair brushed back from his cliff-like brow, and the smile of an old Dutch dairy farmer, which his father had been. And I asked, Dr. Van Til, why did you decide to devote your life to the study of philosophy and the teaching of apologetics? And then I sat back to allow the metaphysics free room to roll. And Van Til never blinked. Why, he said, I did it to protect Christ's little ones. The surprise that could have dropped me to the floor that afternoon has never quite evaporated, he says. Why? To protect Christ's little ones. 
Not only because those words express a great nobility in a few syllables, but because remembering them, they cast down every castle of intellectual folly I erect and am tempted to erect. And because at the end, I'm not worthy of them. And because anyone who understands that the kingdom of God is our true home, that God's people are truly our people, and that this is a world by turns indifferent and hostile to both, must see those words as a true reminder of what we owe to each other as Christians and in what relation we stand to each other. To protect, to help Christ's little ones. To live your life for others, especially God's people. And notice, God's people are indeed that. They are God's. They are Christ's little ones. So in living for them, you are living for Him. By being willing to live your life for others, you're living your life for Christ. And so I say in your outline, be willing to give your life for others. And that means, lastly, be willing to give your life for Christ. Verse 25 Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, in the previous verses, he's expressed uncertainty about whether he's going to live or die. But now he's saying he's convinced he's going to have more time to minister to them. His being convinced must be a personal conviction rather than any revelation that God had given him. If God told him he was not going to die, then there would have been no need for the previous discussion about his uncertainty. He's simply saying that it's his personal conviction that his work on earth is not done. And in the words of the great evangelist George Whitfield, mortals are immortal here until our work is done. What Paul has laid out in these verses is what many of us were taught in Sunday school. Some of you were taught this, weren't you? That uh, joy, J-O-Y, is Jesus, others, you, in that order. And that's what he's saying here. I have joy in everything because Jesus is first, because the gospel is first. And because Christ is first, what matters to him is first, his people and his work. Kent Hughes pastored the college church at Wheaton College in Illinois for 28 years. He tells the story of Andrew Chong, a beloved physician and a member of Hughes Church. Several weeks before Dr. Chong passed away, he was taken to a hospital in Chicago to have a stent cleared of blockage. The procedure was invasive, and after some time, the surgeon came out and indicated that he could not go on because there was too much bleeding. He said to the family, you better get your loved ones here. He may not make it through the night. So all the children were rushed to Andrew's bedside where they gathered weeping and saying goodbyes. Andrew had just come out of anesthetic and was in intense pain and unable to speak. Seeing his family's distress, he made a curious motion with his finger, which they finally understood to be a request for a pen. Of late, he had been unable to write in a straight line. But now, very slowly and with intense deliberation, he wrote 12 words in a single column. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He anchored the column with the word hallelujah. The writing of that last word took him a full minute 
as he made sure to spell it correctly. He was always the precise surgeon. And then, as the anesthetic started to wear off, he was able to speak. And he said to his family, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I'm going to die, but nothing has changed. Because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It was his sole spontaneous last will and testament. He added that word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord to the words of the Apostle Paul to describe his soul's joyous confidence and submission to the will of God. Christ and what is important to Christ informed everything for Paul and it should for us as well. Let's invite that theme to explode in our souls as it did for Dr. Andrew Chong. So friends, I invite you to slowly say, even now, just mouth the words, Silently to yourself. Slowly say seven words as Dr. Chong stacked them vertically for his family. For to me, to live is Christ. Is that the deal with you? For to me, to live is Christ. Can we say that? Do we know Christ? Is he in us? Have we taken up his cross? If so, then we can say it from our hearts, for to me to live is Christ. And if we can say that, we can confidently embrace the five-word result. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And if we can do that, we can then joyously write over our souls, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Come what may. So we say in your take-home truth, everything is to be focused on Christ. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for meeting with us, for speaking to us in your word, for showing us what love is, for giving yourself for others, others who did not deserve it, me, us, and calling us to imitate you. We thank you for your servants. We thank you for our brother Paul and his imitation of you. And Lord, we ask you to help us to imitate then you and imitate him in the lives that you have called us to lead and in the circumstances in which you have sovereignly placed each of us. Help us, Lord, to live as Christians, to live distinctively as Christians, so that whether in life or in death, Christ will be enlarged, be made mega because of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to finish with a few things. One is I want to call your attention to your program. If you'll take that out, I want to quickly go through the announcements. We didn't do those at the beginning because our kids had the uh, song at the beginning, but I'll try to do that quickly. We also have a family joining our church, and then we'll be dismissed with our closing song. But in your program on the left side, in that upper half uh, for community groups, our community groups are not going to meet, and uh, they're not going to meet uh, for the remainder actually... Of, of this year. 
And that's because we just have a bunch of stuff going on on most of the Sunday nights between now and the end of the year. So they won't start up again until so January, so be aware of that. But our midweek Wednesday program starts back up again this Wednesday. We did not meet last Wednesday because of Thanksgiving. Next Sunday, we have a, a family meeting. So all of you who are members of our church, you're encouraged to be here. And we need to have enough people here for a quorum. And we've got some items that we have to officially vote on and a quorum has to be present. So if you can come, please do. We've got our uh, 2017 budget and uh, uh, also a request to uh, call an ordination council to appoint two additions to our pastoral staff. And we'll explain that at that, at that meeting. And then in the middle panel, you see the uh, Bethany Christian Services Christmas Gifts Many of you in our community groups committed to giving gifts to a child or two that was assigned to your community group. Those gifts need to be in by Wednesday, if at all possible, because by next Monday they have to be delivered to Madison Heights to uh, Bethany. Ladies, for the Christmas social on uh, Friday, December 9th, you need to register yourself and any of those that will be coming with you. You can do that online. Uh, at the, the link in the email that we have sent to you. If you don't have that or if you don't uh, go online, you can do that at the uh, information center. Tell them that you're coming and how many are coming with you. But also, we need to know either online or at the information center, ladies, uh, if you're able to bring some food uh, for that and which food you're able to bring that's listed on that online uh, form to fill out. Again, if you don't have that, just let the folks at the information center know I'm coming. Here who's all coming, and I'm willing to bring some food. Contact me. Let me know what I need to need to bring. And then that next morning, men, there's a men's breakfast on December the 10th. We're going to have a guest speaker from Covenant Eyes Accountability Software here, and then you see some longer range things coming up. All right, that's our announcements.